Hello, everyone. We are back with another edition of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. Uh, this is Danny Barham. I'm very excited to once again be here with Adam Kornman. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked in our last episode about all things Squid Game. And uh, we had kind of joked in that episode about reconvening to do another episode all about Midnight Mass, because I know Adam had recently watched it. He was really excited about it. And I have just recently finished uh, season one, and I had a lot of thoughts. I thought it would actually be a great opportunity to talk to Adam once again about the show. So hello, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Howdy, Danny. It's great to be back. Yeah, good to have you. Thank you for joining. Thank you for uh, taking the time. I know uh, everyone's been just busy getting ready for Thanksgiving for the holiday, so Really appreciate you uh, taking some time. Absolutely. Very excited to uh, to discuss this amazing series. And once again, Mike Flanagan just coming out the park swinging. So, yeah, I, I was curious to ask you just because um, I feel like, uh, you know, I talked to I talked to people and some of them were sort of in the know and on the bandwagon of Mike Flanagan and have just watched everything he's done. And then other people I talked to haven't really heard of him yet or don't know what his deal is. So like, when did you become a fan of, uh, of the Flanagan? So I found out about Flanagan, uh, along with the haunting of Hill house on Netflix. And I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, how are they going to make a series out of, you know, essentially a remake of this old book, this old movie, this old, like it, the, the haunting of Hill house has been done and done and done again. It, didn't look like it was going to be anything new. And so I kind of dismissed it for a long time until finally I saw all of these people heaping praise on it. And I'm like, how can a series, how can a TV show be that scary? And then I watched it and it was literally the scariest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I, uh, it's well, so here's what's funny is I think I heard of Mike Flanagan, um, I think early on in his career. Um, when he was doing his first couple movies. And uh, it's funny because uh, I remember seeing the movie uh, Ouija mm-hmm. and and then the sequel to it came out, uh, Origin of Evil. It was actually a prequel, I guess. And I remember there was not very high expectations for that movie, given that it was a prequel to you know, kind of like mid-level horror movie. But I, I went and saw a screening of it, and I really liked it a lot. And I was like, wow, this Mike Flanagan guy, he really uh, over-delivered on this movie. And I think from then on, I kind of had him really on my radar. And I went back and watched some of his older, uh, his previous movies. Um, and then also, of course, I started watching Haunting on Hill House, uh, like you did. And was really impressed by it. I mean, I think for one thing, recently we've seen like a little bit of a renaissance of horror TV, but I feel like for a long time, that was not really something we got a lot of. Um, And so it felt like a really cool thing at the time to have like this very serious, uh, you know, elevated sort of horror TV show because not something we had really seen a lot of until then. 
I think you're absolutely right. There has been a renaissance in horror lately, and I am fully on board for it. Um, I think uh, with you know, with creators like Scott Derrickson, uh, C. Robert Cargill, uh, you know, like the the Sinister series, um, you're, you're starting to see this new generation of horror creators, and especially uh, as we talked about with Squid Game, especially coming out of um, you know, South Korea, there's a lot of incredible horror that is starting to just resurface. I think a, a part of it is the pendulum for public interest swings, you know, to and fro as things kind of move along. And uh, if you look at history, when times are really dark, such as, I don't know, global pandemic, horror tends to be a great escape because it's something that you can get scared about, but know confidently that when you get done, uh, you're going to be okay. And I think that that's something that uh, Flanagan, it just absolutely excels at. I remember... Uh, everybody talking about Oculus, uh, his, yeah. uh, his movie with uh, Karen Gillum. And I watched it the absolute worst way. I basically saw clips of it that explained the story to me. And I went, this isn't that scary. What are you talking about? And after watching Hill House, I went back and revisited it. And uh, nope, it's it's still pretty <laughs> scary. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, I did see Oculus. Um and i really liked it and i think one thing about that movie too that i immediately noticed about flanagan and we'll come back to this i think but i mean visually he's just a really talented director and he has this very particular style of all of his stuff it's like super crisp very um crisp clean uh it has this very like sleek digital kind of look to it um but he really also somehow makes that look work for like a surreal sort of just very creepy sort of feeling, which I don't know how he does it, but he's so talented with that, with that sort of aesthetic. Well, and I think that uh, and this is something that a lot of modern horror directors are really starting to figure out. Um, it all really does come down to character. Horror like comedy is about the situations happening to specific characters. If you don't care about the characters, you're not going to care about the, the scares. And I think that Mike Flanagan found his cast and found the characters that he likes to work with. And that, I, honestly, with The Haunting of Hill House, I think that's when all the pieces came together for him. And all of a sudden, he was just like, oh, this is how I'm going to kill it. Uh, and, and I know that you kind of think the same way. It's by leaning into the Stephen Kingness of it all and and yeah. embracing what that can do for you. I, I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about the haunting of Hill House, but that was a remarkable series in so many ways. Not the least of which is it is still probably one of the best psychological horrors uh, I have ever seen when it comes to the bent neck, bent neck lady. Yeah, and by the way, just a tangent, kind of what you were talking about before, but I think the other thing with horror on tv is that my sense just kind of working in the industry too is that you know there tends to be a lot like i don't know that executives tend to be huge fans of horror a lot of times and so i think in the industry there's often a lot of people that look down on horror and don't really get it um but i think what's happened in the age of streaming uh is that so much is now just data driven and, you know, less reliant on the specific taste of 
certain executives. And I think what's been proven out in the age of Netflix is that people really do like horror and it is a very mainstream genre, um, especially, as, you know, when you skew younger and, you know, are talking about services like Netflix that target, you know, millennials. Um, I think millennials love horror and maybe it was considered something more niche back in the day. But um, I think the data proves out a lot that people are really open minded to that genre. So I think that's been cool. A cool uh, side effect of sort of the streaming era is that different genres, including horror, are really getting their moment. Well, I think that one thing to really like before we jump into the show itself, yeah. horror as a genre tends to thrive in short bursts. And I think that a lot of people were afraid of a TV series. And, and you know, can you maintain that level of intensity? It's, it's the same thing with comedy. If you tell the same joke over and over and over again, people don't laugh anymore. They get it. But with horror, uh, if you're able to maintain that level of tension, if you're able to keep the audience hooked, that is a real testament to your mastery of the genre. And honestly, I think that The Haunting of Hill House uh, it was, was paved, uh, or the way to The Haunting of Hill House was paved by you know, people like James Wan, people like Scott Derrickson, people like Wes Craven. Who you know? Who yeah. really made the horror genre what it is? When we get to that, you know, that era in uh, 2018, and then you just had this uh, this incredible cast and crew, this incredible writer director come in and take off. And I mean, I know uh, I know people are a little bit mixed on Bly Manor, but to me, Bly Manor demonstrated that you could have the slowest burn horror and just maintain people's interest because it was still so captivating. And then you were mentioning, too, how, you know, it's hard with TV to sustain horror. Um, and, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Bly Manor, too. And I actually really liked Bly Manor. See, for me, the thing with Mike Flanagan is that he tends to be, like, very high-minded. He's very ambitious thematically. However, I like when he gets a little, like, crazy and over-the-top and embraces that inner sort of, uh, I guess, almost like Stephen King, uh, you know, tendency, where, um, I mean, Haunting of Hill House, as much as I liked it, it was so serious and so um, relentless thematically that, you know, at times it could be just very heavy, um, versus Bly Manor had a little bit of a lighter more kind of cheeky touch to it almost which i like i i agree and i i'm one of the people who really liked blind manor because of that slow burn because and honestly it's the same thing with midnight mask when it comes down to it it is not a really scary horror story it is a different take on a horror story because it's very much like a ghost story you have to imagine that you're sitting around a campfire and, you know, people are going around in a circle trying to outspook each other. And I think that Bly Manor shows you that sometimes it doesn't have to be jump scares. It doesn't have to be monsters. There's different ways of getting under your skin. And Bly Manor had such a beautiful story to it with, with so much character uh, that you just, you couldn't help but be brought along. And I think Midnight Mass is just the culmination of all of those skills being put to the test in such a wonderful way. Yeah. And so Midnight Mass, I mean, 
it, you know, we'll talk about it, but I think one thing that it did just right off the bat so well is it just brought you into this world. It introduced you to the characters. It took its time and it just sort of doled out these little moments of horror. And then it sort of got into this rhythm where like at the end of every episode for those first couple episodes, there was some, you know, jaw dropper of a moment that was like just pure horror but you had to get through like the whole hour to get to that and it and it had amazing build up to those moments it was a show that was designed to be binged and i think that that's something that uh that flanagan really has learned to embrace obviously getting a lot of his success uh from netflix he's learned how to write for that particular medium and it really really shines in midnight mass at the end of every episode as you said you get these huge twists like not not something that you can kind of ignore it's something that you go oh well now i have to know what happens next and all of a sudden you've watched the entire series in an evening yeah and it is interesting because you know you mentioned stephen king and i feel like from moment one of this show of midnight mass there's just that instant feeling of Stephen Kingness, where it's this sort of small, you know, coastal island uh, village. And it's this very kind of Americana, you know, sort of world that almost feels like lost in time. And it has that very Stephen King type feel to it from moment one. And in that very Stephen King fashion, Mike Flanagan really sets up all these characters and their histories and personal dramas before he even really gets to any of the real horror aspects of anything. Absolutely. And, and Mike has mentioned many, many times that he considers himself something of a student of Stephen King. There's often a ton of homages and little inside jokes that if you are a fan of Stephen King, you're going to go, oh, I recognize that. Oh, that's a reference to that. And uh, I mean, it's no, it's no wonder that Mike Flanagan did Dr. Sleep because he is such a fan of, of the writer. And it shows like all of the characters from Midnight Mass. I mean, there's some incredibly beautiful three-dimensional characters, but they're, each one of them also has this real Stephen King vibe where there's a defining characteristic about them. Uh, the character of Bev, played by uh, Samantha Sloyan, is such a Stephen King character. Mm -hmm. this, this person who is so full of righteousness that it has gone full 180 and, and taken them to a super dark path. Um, and it's, it's beautifully played, too. I mean, you have to give credit to the cast for pulling off these, these characters with such nuance. And I know that some of the characters play it very bluntly, but there is still so much nuance. And we're, we'll definitely get into, get into some of that as we go forward. Yeah. And by the way, I mean, Dr. Sleep is actually, I think, my favorite by far Mike Flanagan thing. Um, to me, it's like a near perfect movie. I know there's sort of mixed reaction out there, but to me, that was when he struck just the perfect balance between kind of that grounded seriousness and then the more like over the top uh, aspects of the horror and, and supernatural of it all. Um, mm -hmm. And I think he recaptures a little bit of that in Midnight Mass where it is really that balance between very grounded moments and then just like some of the craziest 
uh, just like supernatural horror moments that he's ever done in anything in any of his film or TV works, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I would say, and uh, I do think we're about to get over the bridge into spoiler territory. So for all of you listening, yeah. hey, spoiler warning. Uh, this this show was uh, recommended to me as imagine if it was a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode and Buffy never showed up. And that's it's a really interesting perspective on like how things kind of play out because it is a, an incredibly self-contained story with huge implications on the world. And that is some of the best types of horror. It's the, the deniability of it, that this whole thing could have happened yesterday. And it totally makes sense that you would never hear of it. The character actions, though extreme, still kind of fit into their characters and, and make sense. And it's, that's what makes it the kind of thing that you want to keep talking about long after the show ends. Yeah, and it's funny because I actually I went in really knowing nothing. I mean, I assume there was a religious aspect to everything just based on the title, but I really didn't know what the horror was going to be. And and it really does kind of keep you guessing. Like when you first start that that pilot, you know, you see some sort of creatures with like shiny eyes that are obscured by shadow, but you really don't know what's going on at all. Like it's only uh, much later that you're like, oh, this is vampires. So, yeah, Adam, we were talking about um, just the Stephen King of it all. And uh, it is interesting where, um, you know, like we were talking about, the horror kind of really just comes in these small chunks with Midnight Mass. And you really don't know what's going on for a while. So, So you're saying you knew, like, from the beginning that it was vampires? Well, I, I didn't know that it was vampires, but I was told essentially, I, I don't think they used Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think they said something like, it's like a, you know, you're in a horror story, you start to recognize the tropes. And I think that's something that Mike plays with. Uh, as you, I, I've, I've since watched the show again, and there's a lot of subtle nods and not so subtle nods that he does towards vampire lore. Uh, people mm-hmm. only entering a, a, a location if they've been properly invited um, the, the giant trunk that is brought into a room in, yeah. in the first episode and you go, okay, well, I'm pretty sure I know what, you know, what creature has to ship itself around the world. So well, you know, that's, that's one of the things that Mike was doing in this series was playing with your expectations. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Did you watch, uh, the strain at all? I did. I saw the, the first season, but I kind of lost track after that. Well, it's just that whole thing with the, the like the box carrying the guy. Yeah, that reminded me a lot of the beginning of the strain where the master is sort of, you know, being shipped in a boat or whatever. <laughs> um, Which in turn is playing playing homage to uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, that is a good point. But it's funny though, because like the the, uh, you know, I don't know the angels or whatever you want to call them, the the head vampire dudes in Midnight Mass did remind me of like the like the master from the strain in terms of how they looked also oh it was a very nosferatu design and i I mean we're gonna we're gonna get into that in a second but the idea of oh it's an angel because in the bible it always says people were terrified of being in the presence of angels it's like has nobody in this town ever seen a, a vampire movie 
Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing. <laughs> this is the thing. And like, we'll talk more about this, but I think one of the problems, and I think about this from a writer perspective too, is, you know, the way that the show is, has this slow build, it's very easy in the first half of the show to not ever mention vampires and not directly address them. But when, once you get into the second half and it's like clearly vampires, then it gets to the point where you're sort of thinking like, has nobody seen a vampire movie here? Like what's going on? You know? And it's kind of that weird suspension of disbelief thing, but I don't know. It's a tricky thing of how do you handle that sort of storytelling in a show like this? I think the way you do it is twofold. I think you do, you play it earnestly. And I think that that's something that Midnight Mass does exceptionally well is that everybody, everybody is along for the ride because until the moment where you see the monster, until the moment where you're sitting in church about to do uh, a spoiler alert, mass suicide, uh, you kind of just think, oh, well, this is a small town, small town values. And when we say small town, we're talking, you know, a couple hundred people and they're very isolated. They're, they're basically reliant on each other and their community to survive anything. And so you'd be willing to go along because that, that's sometimes what you do for your community. That's sometimes what you do when you are so tightly encased in a community that you can't imagine breaking away from it. That the idea of challenging the community is uh, almost like death. And that's something that Mike Flanagan plays with, with, uh, uh, Riley's parents, where they are so invested in their life and in the structure of the life that they've created, that until the very last moment, they refuse to challenge it. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, so, you know, to, to step back, you know, the show basically opens with, uh, you know, well, first of all, you've got the, the main guy. Um, what's his name again? Riley Flynn, played by Zach Guilford. Yeah, he, so he, uh, you see a flashback where he's basically caused this girl to die. He, he was drunk driving and he ends up killing her and he ends up moving back to his home, uh, you know, after he's done a lengthy prison stay and he kind of goes back home and it's sort of this whole like, can you ever go home again thing? And meanwhile, the priest who, or, or the, uh, I guess you, it's priest is the right term, right? Or, uh, I believe so. We should also, full disclosure, yeah. we're both Jewish. Yeah. So there's some mythology <laughs> we're going to mess up and we apologize. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, we'll talk more about that. But um, the priest who, who's sort of like been the, the bedrock of this town, who's like an older guy, he's disappeared. This new guy comes to replace him and immediately you know while there's like a moment of everyone being like oh who's this new guy very quickly people kind of really warm up to him and and sort of he almost has this cult of personality around him from these people who are already inclined to be like very devout disciples of whoever their religious leader was but for this guy in particular within like a couple days they're just like hanging on every word he says Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, the, the slow burn that we talked about earlier, it, it really comes into play in the first episode because you've got Riley 
and you're you're really like living through his eyes as he you know, experiences this horrific drunk driving accident where they I mean they open the show and it's people doing uh, a fruitless CPR on a very clearly dead girl and Riley is just kind of sit there with like barely a scratch on him because unfortunately that's sometimes how drunk driving accidents go is the drunk doesn't even get a scratch and they've ruined somebody's life. Um, and so you get to see him walk through this town and he was this, this, uh, the prodigal son of this small fishing Island. Uh, and I don't think they ever really specify where it's supposed to be, but he's walking through this town. We meet all of our main characters. It's a beautiful one. You also get to see how his parents are, are looking at them. This former altar boy who ruined his life and, and had a, a big, a part of hurting theirs, uh, who they're now, okay, well, now you have to come back to church. Now you have to come back into this life because clearly we messed up and that this is going to be how we get you back. So all of these things, you're seeing how this town reacts to the outside world, to people who try to get away. And then everybody leads to the church. And as, as Danny, as you said, I mean, we have this mystery around where is the old priest and then introduce the new young, the hot pope, uh, <laughs> Hamish Linklater, who, I mean, it, look, everybody in this show is doing incredible work. Um, I think, I think uh, Riley is performed really well with a lot of subtlety. Um, Henry Thomas, Elliot from E.T., who is one of, yes. one of Mike Flanagan's go-tos, is killing it because he always does. Uh, mm -hmm. We would be, of course, we'll talk a lot about Kate Siegel as we go on and Raul Coley, but my God, how Hamish Linklater steals this show from the first words out of his mouth. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing I would say about this show in terms of recommending it to someone, probably the first thing I would say is just Hamish Linklater delivers like an all-timer performance as Father Paul where there's so many layers to this performance and he's so good in so many different ways. I mean, to me, just one of the key things is that from moment one, he's very menacing and there's something off about him and something that you sense is sinister about him. But he also totally has that like, you know, college professor, like I'm just like a cool guy type of thing going I wear jeans, you know, and, uh, you know, he has those moments where he seems very normal and like kind of just like a cool priest that you would, you know, whether you're like the teenage kids or the older, you know, churchgoers, like they all kind of take a, a liking to him and you get why. But then he has this other side to him. And the whole time you're wondering, like, all right, who is this guy? Is he, you know, the devil? Is he... Is he actually good? Like, what's his deal? That's what you're just wondering the entire time for those first couple episodes. Uh, Hamish, Hamish Linklater, I first saw from the, the TV show Legion, which was oh, the, right. sort of the X-Men adjacent uh, series. I thought that was a really interestingly done series. I know it didn't connect with everyone. It, Hamish didn't have a huge part in it, but he really always delivered. He has, he's the kind of actor who has presence. Like yeah. If nothing else, you will just notice him on screen. And I think that's a really great skill for an actor to be able to do is even with just subtle facial movements, with 
where they position themselves, the choices they make, you just can't look away. And I think you hit the nail. There's something sinister about his character from the jump. And as the series goes on, you realize a lot of it is his unshaking certainty that what he is doing is the right path. And I think that that is, that is a lot of what the show is about, about what the entire series is about, is that unflinching pursuit of a path of an ideology can yeah. lead you to some very dark and very dangerous places. And the fact that Hamish brings you along, he doesn't like, uh, again, spoilers, until the very end of the series, he does not waver from his path. And there's moments where you will go, okay, I kind of get it. I kind of see why he is this way. I kind of see why he would make these choices. But that's, that's something about his character that I just fell in love with. It was so captivating. And I, I remember finishing the first episode and, you know, I, I kind of put my, my computer down and I go, I have never seen so many actors fit together while standing apart like that. Every single character felt like they were the lead in the series. And I think that's an incredible achievement, not just from the actors, but the crew, you know, the DP, the director, everybody understanding how to give people a moment to breathe and right. steal the limelight or steal the spotlight for a second. I thought it was just a beautifully well done opening episode. And, and one other thing just about Hamish Linklater that doesn't have to do with the thematics or anything, but just, you know, throughout the show, there's moments where he has to just act like he's in incredible pain or turmoil or whatever. And he just does an incredible job with that where, you know, uh, I, I don't know if I've ever seen an actor like sell pain so well as he does in this show where, you know, he just makes you feel every moment of it. Um, he really just does an incredible job. And there's, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's a couple of characters who sell it so beautifully well, but uh, one of my favorites uh, who kind of, um, who kind of no sells it, if we want to bring in a re uh, wrestling term, is Michael yes. Trucco, who I knew from Battlestar Galactica, but I mean, you'll, oh, right, you'll recognize yeah. he is, he's a, a, an actor who's been in a ton of different shows, um, and he plays the mayor, and he... It, uh, I mean, we're jumping all over the place, but he has these moments of absolute, like he has completely been shaken to his core. Nothing is real. He is unhinged. Right. And then you have these other moments where he's like, I, I guess I'm going on. I don't, I'm following this path. And, and you can see the conflict in his face. And then there's these moments where he's just, he tries to play the dumb mayor, and I, I loved it so much. In episode two specifically, there's a beautiful oneer because, of course, Mike Flanagan needed a oneer that takes place all uh, in the opening scenes on a beach. And mm -hmm. God, Michael Trugo is just killing it as the as the the mayor from Jaws, basically. Yeah, although you know, so one thing that I think I have to mention is that you know, I mean, I I was hooked from the pilot, and I was immediately into the show, but. I, and I think a lot of people have the same experience is from the early moments of the show, you're immediately like, okay, wait, something weird is going on here because a lot of these actors seem to have some sort of old age makeup on and are, <laughs> are younger actors playing older characters. And the makeup seems like a little off. Like 
something is going on here. And I, I'm guessing that's sort of intentional because it immediately, they want you to question like what's going on with this. Um, but it is a little jarring. I mean, it's inter- it's an interesting choice that they made. There were, so I didn't recognize some of the actors at first. Uh, when mm-hmm. I first saw, um, when I first saw Elliot, uh, uh, I, I'm going to call it Matt Elliot for the rest of the day. When I first yeah. saw Henry Thomas, uh, for a moment, I'm like, I didn't recognize makeup. All I thought was, oh man, Henry Thomas aged really fast since the last movie. Uh, yeah. And, and the trick that they pull with it, yes, there's some characters who are like, hey, why'd you put that 20-year-old person in a bunch of old age makeup? That's weird. But there are others who you're like, oh damn, that worked really well. That sold the, the story 100% the way they should have. Yeah, it definitely kept me guessing because I was like, okay, something is going on. Like, these characters seem artificially aged. And so all kinds of stuff was going through my head. I was like, are they part of some cult that is, like, you know, keeping them young? Or, you know, I don't know. I didn't know what was going on. But I was like, it was clear that there was something askew with these characters and their makeup from, from kind of moment one. Andy. Well, so so to kind of set the stage for how the, the story goes out, you've got this new young priest who shows up, and, uh, and the reason he shows up is because the, the town's old priest, who had been there for, you know, 60, 70 years, uh, he went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the throes of dementia, and uh, according to this new priest, he got injured, but he's okay. He's just recovering on the mainland. So there's already a little bit of a suspicious delivery. Like, that's too cute a story. It makes you go, mm, something ain't right. Something's, something's amiss, and I don't know what it is yet. Uh, you have this, this character uh, played by um, Anara Simone Aliza, uh, this young girl who's in a wheelchair because she was shot by the town drunk. Who may or may not have been the town drunk when he shot her? That's, that's kind of a no, another character secret that we get to kind of discover. Mm-hmm. And... You've got all of these subtle stories that are working throughout. You've got the new sheriff, Raul Coley, who is a Muslim sheriff come to a small, tiny Christian town. You've got Bev, who is the, uh, what, what, what's the word? Is it docent? What's her official title? Uh, I just called her creepy church lady, but yeah, I don't know. she's creepy church lady. She's Bev yeah. Keen. And uh, again, played... Brilliantly. I, I, I know that uh, in today's age, people tend to give villainous actors a lot of hate, which you shouldn't do because, hey, they're actors. That's a character they're playing. But Samantha Sloane, I was so worried she was great. watching yeah. the show. I'm like, oh, no, she's going to get death threats. People aren't going <laughs> to like her because on the other hand, you have people love Ro Coley. Like, well, I think the fan base for Ro Coley is a uh, thirsty as hell. <laughs> I mean, so we'll talk like I at some point I want to pivot to like the latter half of the episodes and I have thoughts about that. But I would I agree with you that to start out, the show kind of very brilliantly lays out this tapestry of characters. It's funny. I also recently watched the show Mayor of Easttown, which I loved. Mm-hmm. And uh, this had some similarities to, to that show and that it's this very uh, wide a vast group of interconnected characters who all sort of have their secrets and their, you know, relationships to each other. And it takes a while to sort of get acclimated to all these characters. But after a while, you, you sort of put all the pieces together and it all 
fits together really well in terms of painting the picture of this small island, you know, village. And I know a lot of people got kind of turned off because of the slow burn aspect of the show. Because the first three episodes, nothing really happens. Like there's not there's not a lot of scares in the show, regardless, all the way through to the end. Uh, but it's it's more about character. It's about the the story of these characters going through this experience, and that's what that's what really drew me to it. And I know that that was also something that pushed a few people away. But yeah, for the first few episodes, really, you're just discovering how this town has lived with a few very deep, dark secrets. And as we will discover towards the latter half of the show, there are a few bigger ones that they're going to come up with. Um, but you're, you're introduced to the concept of this, this church that has been taking money from this incredibly poor town. Um, I mean, literally, people are living in shacks. It is, it's a very stark contrast, the way that they show, one, this old but beautifully maintained church, this extravagant community center, and then people living in essentially fishing huts all around this tiny, tiny island that barely has a tree to its name. Um, and so all of these different stories, all of these different characters, their lives are so tightly uh, woven together that the introduction or reintroduction of Riley Flynn, the prodigal son, is starting to expose those nerves and force this new thing. And that's the introduction of Hamish Linklater and some of the stuff he's going to do is also going to expose some of that nerve. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting though. I do think like, I never considered it to be like, it was a slow burn for sure, but I was never bored by it because, and I think Mike Flanagan has done this in haunting of Hill house and Bly Manor where he's such a master at, weaving in those moments of horror that you're always even during the quieter moments or slower moments you're always waiting for that other shoe to drop and you're never kind of just sitting back in your chair relaxed while you're watching you're always on the edge of your seat wondering when that next crazy thing is going to happen you know it's little subtle things it's it's Raul Coley seeing this ghostly face as he's tucking his son in. It's yeah. the sound design of these weird leathery wings just somewhere in the background. Just the sense. And this is something Mike Flanagan, I think, is better at than a lot of directors. I, I think James Wan is probably one of the most prolific horror directors out there. And I really give him so much credit for revitalizing a genre that had been kind of stymied by found footage. And he found a new and interesting way to bring things together. I mean, his Conjuring series is, is not for everybody, but you can't deny it. it's one of the most successful horror franchises of all time. Um, yeah. And, and then you have Mike Flanagan, who I think took a lot of the lessons from so many horror directors. And the addition that he added that I love so, so much is the horror in the corners. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is if you, if you watch Bly Manor, if you watch Haunting of Hill House, and if you watch... Midnight Mass, there are ghosts and monstrous things in the shadows, mm -hmm. always. And it's sometimes the, the camera is so, you know, pulling focus in one direction, you could not see it. Like, there's no real way for you to notice that it's there, but you do. Your eye detects the movement. Your, your brain pieces together the shape in the corner, and it tells you, you should be afraid something's watching you. And that is something that so few directors 
do nowadays, filling the scene, filling the frame with so much detail that your brain is picking away things to, uh, to haunt you with later. Yeah, I think he's an incredible director from a visual standpoint. And I think it's even like episode three just has this montage of, you know, set to uh, like Neil Diamond that's so well done. And it's like, you know, he took this song that probably in another context would be just kind of cheesy and whatever uh, and and just made it like very creepy and and also in turn sort of poignant uh and he's so good at like just interweaving these images together and sort of taking you on this journey in a very controlled like he's one of those directors who you feel like he's controlling every moment that you're watching you know absolutely i think that that's something that you can tell you don't know what it is but when a director has full control over the storytelling you will walk away feeling more satisfied. And I think that that's a mark of a good director. When people say like, what, what is good direction? It's, it's so many little things that add up to you, the viewer, walking away feeling like, I got a full experience. I got incredible acting. I've got visual storytelling. I've got the, the set and art direction. All of these pieces coming together and to, you know, to really like hit the nail on the head. It's just that feeling of, I want to talk about this. Like, I can't stop talking about this. I think that that's what really marks down how well this all worked out. Yeah. And so if I'm remembering correctly, it's the the first three episodes, we're sort of getting these, you know, we're getting these of horror where these mysterious creatures are sort of abducting people and killing people and kind of stalking in the night and you see their glowing eyes, but you really don't know what's going on. You sort of detect this like sinister vibe coming from father Paul. Um, And I believe it's in episode four where the ending, uh, if if I'm remembering correctly, uh, where then at the end, you finally get this sort of origin story for father Paul, where it's almost a Dracula esque type of thing. Um, it actually weirdly reminded me of the movie Dracula Untold mm-hmm. and how it was uh, framed. Uh, but you see, the, you know, Father Pruitt, the, the older version of the, the, the guy who had been missing, uh, you know, he's off in like the Holy Land. Of, I think he's in like Israel and he's in maybe Jerusalem and he wanders into this like catacomb. And all of a sudden there's this full on like Nosferatu winged vampire um you know shades of like the master in the strain who just takes him and turns him into a vampire and restores his youth and it's really disturbing and just insane and you've got this wonderful framing device of hamish linklater is essentially confessing his sins to an empty church and he's sitting down and he's saying bless me father for i've sinned you have these these haunting wooden uh, reliefs that are showing the scenes as he's describing them, as there are flashbacks. And it's, it's so well done. Again, credit to Hamish Linklater, everything that came out of his mouth, you're just like, yeah, keep talking, man. I am in for this. What else you got? Like, it was just such a captivating monologue. Um, and yes, you, you get to this, uh, obviously anybody who's ever been to Israel, knows that you, you don't really walk from the old city in Jerusalem to essentially the desert near Syria. 
Like there's a mm-hmm. few few towns and highways in between. It's kind of a developed nation, but there's, uh, I mean, it's it's done so well, and it's the sort of thing where you're kind of getting into the storytelling of it. Like clearly, he's not telling the whole truth, and I think that that's again a great actor being able to do that kind of subtlety, letting the audience know he's lying without letting them know he's lying. And right. it's and it's really really well done. And then you get to this point where this old man who in in Hamish's words is in the the final throes of dementia like this is end of his life dementia uh and he comes across this cave that had been uh, i can't remember the exact phrasing but basically there's these horrible storms hitting the holy land that have unearthed ancient relics and ancient ruins and that's where this creature had been since time immemorial and so this old withered man falls into this pit and inside is a monster and he is so far gone mentally that when he sees a creature in the holy land with these huge wings his first thought is it's an angel yeah and i think that whole cliffhanger sets up two things in my mind for the rest of the series one is just visually you know, this is like the craziest thing by far we've seen on the show yet. And it just establishes that like every time we see these vampire creatures, I mean, it's just it's just this feeling of, you know, uh, awe and horror because they're presented as so nightmarish and, you know, powerfully presented that every time they're shown, it's incredibly effective and just kind of awe-inspiring because it's, you know, the, the way that Flanagan uh, presents them is just so crazy. And then secondly, it's sort of then, you know, they don't tell you sp- explicitly like, okay, you know, Father Pruitt was, you know, turned into a vampire and, you know, this is the philosophy he adopted. You sort of are left to extrapolate it and interpret the various sermons and other things he says to people as like, okay, this is where he's at now. And that scene sort of makes you turn the corner and be like, okay, what happened to this guy? Like, where is he coming from mentally? He's basically this man of faith who has taken his faith and twisted it into something incredibly evil. And the whole rest of the series are kind of trying to put the pieces together of like, okay, what is this philosophy exactly that he now has? And, like, how do you even wrap your arms around it as a viewer? Like, some of it kind of makes sense. Some of it is just flat-out insane. And, like, the whole rest of the show, you're sort of grappling with that as a viewer, I think. Well, I think that that's something that uh, that Mike Flanagan, you know, kind of set out to do, the, the very clear parallels between religious fanaticism and zealotry and addiction. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, one of the main characters, Riley, is an addict. He he was so addicted and went so far into his addiction that he killed somebody that it shook his life and shook the lives of so many people around him. Um, and I think that that's a parallel that I know some people, some audiences didn't like, uh, especially when it came towards the latter episodes. And and you have, you know, zealous Christianity portrayed in this negative light, but really it didn't have to be just Christianity. It's just the language is there in 
the Old Testament and the New Testament, where there's a lot of language about blood, about resurrection, about the end of days. And it, in a different light, is kind of vampiric. And it does weirdly fit with that kind of a story. And I think that's what makes it very effective. But you do also have to be able to separate, you know, that this is not a treatise against Christianity or a treatise against religion. It's a treatise against zealotry, against that unwavering belief that you cannot be wrong. And I mean, look, I think the reality is it certainly is, I think, a commentary on a lot of what we're seeing today where, you know, um, you can look at sort of not to get too political, I guess, but I think this is a very political show where, you know, you look at the way that evangelical Christianity has become intertwined with, you know, uh, certain aspects of the Republican Party and what's going on with COVID. And it's like, you know, a lot of people have, have made the comparison that this more fanatical wing of conservatism has become a death cult, essentially. And that's sort of what is portrayed in this show is the this conclusion that that Hamish Linklater comes to that, like, I am using this power of religion and faith to basically create a death cult. I think, and, and, and to anybody who says, oh, it's just, it's just a TV show. To, oh, it's this. All, all art is political inherently because politics is just kind of a view of life. And so if you ever watch a show, if you ever read anything, or experiencing anything and you don't see the politics in it, that kind of just means that you agree with them. And I think that, I think you're right. I think that uh, Mike Flanagan maybe, maybe wasn't making a specific statement against uh, anyone in particular, but it was definitely about uh, this, this theism and, um, and Christian nationalism, which, which has in many cases in modern day, it has presented dangerously. There have been people who have been so swept up in their belief that they are righteous, their belief that they are infallible, that they can do incredible harm to people. And I mean, if you read the Bible, if you read the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran, uh, if you look at any major religion or any minor religion, any religion around the world uh, that is you know, widely practiced, widely accepted, there is always a warning to people who believe that they can do no wrong. I mean, in the Old Testament, every time the Jewish people uh, thought that they were uh, above it all or that they had really locked down this whole chosen people thing, that's the moment when another people would come in and kill them all and blow up the temple. And that's something that I think uh, I think a lot of people in modern times have kind of forgotten is that religion isn't supposed to make you better than other people. Yeah, I think there's two really interesting characters and in the show who sort of provide counterpoints to the more fanatical father, Paul and Bev one being Riley, who, you know, I think what's interesting is he is sort of a non-believer based on all of his trauma that he's gone through, but he does start throughout the show having these like one-on-one -on -one sessions with father Paul mm. that proved to be actually very helpful to him and to me, those sessions represent the good of religion, like the ability to find spiritual support and find, you know, comfort and things like that. 
And that's where you're seeing really the good side of Father Paul and what he could be if he weren't a crazy vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other interesting character is obviously uh, Sheriff Hassan, played by Raul Coley, who, um, you know, is, is a Muslim and is, because of that, very much an outsider in the town and a little bit of a pariah. And he is sort of struggling with, you know, he has this son who wants to, you know, due to kind of peer pressure, wants to be part of the church. And, you know, he gets a lot of, you know, um, passive aggressive, sometimes purely aggressive, uh, you know, um, disdain from the rest of the town people. And so he's grappling with that. And there is this sort of tension there. So I think there's a lot of interesting interplay between these different characters who are either of various faiths or non-believers, things like that within the show. Absolutely. And I think everyone has a different take. Uh, every character, as, as I said earlier, is, is very well-rounded and is bringing this unique approach to, uh, to religion, to belief, to, to science and mysticism. Uh, I mean, you've got Annabeth Gish playing the, the only doctor uh, who is you know, coming from this view of science into this incredible, fantastical world. Uh, Kate Siegel, who like Riley had a bit of a troubled childhood, but kind of found herself in, in motherhood in, in a, or a budding motherhood. Um, you have, I, 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 unfortunately I cannot remember his name, but the town drunk, uh, who basically is so shunned by the entire town that the only thing that he has is his true deep connection to a dog, uh, to <laughs> find peace and to find, to find anything. And it's, Everybody in the story is seeking to heal a burden, to heal a wound. Every single person is coming into this show with a problem that has, or not, not a problem, but a hole in them. There's something yeah. missing. And the story, uh, through to its terminal conclusion, um, is about them finding out how they're going to fill that hole and, and how they're going to move forward. With some people, it's very dark. With Bev, her pursuit of this perfect righteous moment is in, the, in fact her own downfall. With Rahul, with Sheriff Hassan, his pursuit of finding dignity in his life is kind of rewarded. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, uh, I, I think we should start pushing through to like to the turns and the twist. But that's one of the things that the show does really well is that as it starts to let the dominoes fall, you get to see people find out how to fix that hole in themselves. And it starts early enough on with, um, so you, the first major twist, obviously, you, you have these little hints of mystical energy all around. And then you have this, uh, this, this girl who was uh, paralyzed, shot in the spine. Uh, and she's, uh, I think, a young high school age. She's been doing, uh, it's, it's not, is it communion? Is that what it's called when you're, you're drinking, you know, blood of Christ, body of Christ? Yeah, yeah. So everybody's been doing communion and, and you get these subtle things like uh, the altar boys run out of wine. And as they duck back into the room, uh, Hamish is just pouring a flask into the, the sacrament. And it's like, well, that's something, something's not right about that. But anyway, everyone in town is drinking wine because it's a small town and they're all religious mostly. And you start to notice that they're like their hips don't hurt as much as they used to. 
or they don't need glasses to read right. like they used to. And then you get to the end of it's either I think it's episode two or episode three where this this girl in a wheelchair who has become very, very religious since her incident is expecting her communion. And then Father Father Paul walks away from her and he's like, come to me. So she starts to move her wheelchair closer. He's like, nope. And he walks up some stairs and you're like, what the hell's going on? This is a really dark moment. And again, the actors play it so well, like not, not giving into any of this guy's bullshit. And, and then this poor girl stands and walks and it's this miraculous moment. But because you know, you're watching a horror story, you're like, uh Oh, right. Oh, you know, no. there's some other oh, no. that's going to drop. And, uh, uh, and and the the moment that it leads to is a couple episodes later where you have the town drunk, the person who shot her, and she <clears> confronts <throat> him in his trailer. And it is it is some of the best, like low stakes, high drama action uh, acting I have ever seen because it's so personal. It's so painful and it's so well done. And what's amazing is that w the, the point of it is, you know, filling that that hole that that thing that you think is wrong about yourself or that thing that somebody claims is wrong about you it's finding the grace to forgive the person you hate the most in the world and in in the drunk's case it's him he hates himself and it's this beautiful moment that eventually directly leads to the big turn yeah and i'll, I'll just say too that you know uh to your point like i do think i mean i don't know enough about all the ins and outs of Christianity to, I mean, I'm sure there's people that could speak to it much better than I could, but it is interesting that the show examines the religion from so many different perspectives, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. And it is funny just from a genre perspective that I think we, a lot of us do, especially probably, you know, non-Christian folks like us associate Christianity in many ways with horror Um in part because of all the like, sort of Christianity-based horror that's been in, like, the pop culture zeitgeist for so long. Mm -hmm. And then also just when you, you know, especially from an outsider's perspective, there is so much about the day-to-day -day of, like, Catholicism in particular that, you know, feels very horrorous. Like, you're drinking the blood of Christ. You're, you know, um, you, you, know you just walk in a church and you see these very creepy looking uh stained glass windows and there's a lot of uh you know a lot of the um elements of, of the religion do have this horror undertone that i think makes for really fruitful storytelling well a part of that and i i'm speaking a little out of turn since this isn't my my area of study but a lot of uh horror like the modern reinvention of horror stems from gothic horror and gothic yeah. horror was very much based around uh, aspects of the church because back when gothic horror was kind of getting its its day that's what life was your life for so many years of human civilization centered around the community and, and centered around the church so a lot of those stories are built around the ideas and aspects and and uh, rituals and, and i mean look we can look at it from the outside perspective and say, oh, you're drinking the blood of Christ, the body of Christ. Jews also have some very weird religious stuff that we do. I mean, we, true, true. we, we shake leaves at things. We, uh, we, <laughs> we wave a chicken over our heads to, to rid ourselves of sin. There's a whole bunch of weird stuff that happens in religion. And I think that's what yeah. makes it 
fodder for so much horror because when you kind of look at it from an objective point of view it's like what is what is actually happening here um so it is fascinating though just um you know if you i mean i think what this show really does is sort of call attention to kind of the mythology around jesus christ and the resurrection and things like that and sort of link it to the mythology around vampires Mm -hmm. um it's sort of like the dark side of that um in a really interesting way and and as as like the story progresses so you get you you get this moment where um uh the the mayor and bev and everybody is coming to check on the father because he's kind of been acting he's been acting a little sick he has a fainting spell and then when they come to see him he just straight up seizes up and vomits blood in front of them and dies and it is this (laughs) sudden horrific twist because for for a while, in the first couple episodes, I was convinced that he had brought back the original priest and the original priest had turned into a vampire and that right. he was some sort of unholy disciple. And that's kind of the, the twist that I thought it was. As we learn, no, that is the old preach. preacher. Mm-hmm. The vampiric blood de-aged him. Uh, and what we don't know is that uh, it is also killing him and he is, it, he is basically becoming a vampire. And there's this beautiful, haunting, horrific moment where you're like, oh, no, a young, hot priest is dead. What's going to happen next? And then, holy crap, he just comes back from the dead. And you have the, the holier-than-thou Bev watching this happen. And you're like, oh, I see the wheels turning. I see what's about to happen. And it's not going to be great for everyone involved. Yeah, and they also keep it very ambiguous until almost, I think, the final episode of, like, to what extent was Bev in the know on all this? And there's little hints, but for a lot of it, you're kind of like, wait, what's her deal? Like, is she part of this or what? And that's just an interesting sort of uh, narrative device that the, that the show uses really well, I think. Well, I, it makes me curious uh, when he dies in front of the mayor and Bev and, and, and all of them. Did Bev poison him the way that she poisoned so many? Right. And that's like because she was not getting along with the new preacher. She had some misgivings about the way that he would talk to people or the way that he would treat others that she deemed unworthy of his, you know, his support and care. And, uh, and we already know that Bev straight up murders a person's dog, which is the most (laughs) obvious, you know, anti save the cat you can ever do. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's a, a great bit of storytelling is that you have these questions that aren't explicitly answered but are definitely open for possibility. Yeah. And then, I mean, just in terms of like end of episode twists, I mean, you had that moment and then there was just this like streak of incredible jaw dropping moments where I believe the next episode, Riley is sort of assaulted in the church by the master vampire, whatever you want to call him. And it's this insane scene Know, sudden violence and then that's it end of episode well yeah you have this beautiful moment between riley and the town drunk who are now both going to alcoholics anonymous with the preacher and there's and those scenes i, I mean again beautifully written i know one of the criticisms of the show is that it's essentially a lot of monologues people monologuing at each other uh which personally i didn't mind i thought it was done really well but no yeah i didn't mind it either to me it was it made sense for a show about religion exactly so you you have the town drunk is he's 
making amends. He's trying to be sober. And he reveals to Riley, hey, my sister died, and I was, like, too afraid to go see her, and it's a whole thing. Um, the town drunk has a moment where he is tempted. And so he goes to the person he believes is his sponsor, the the preacher, and the preacher, through kind of, you know, the the impetus of being a vampire, accidentally kills him and then drinks his face and, and you know, drinks all of his blood. And it's this really right. horrific moment. Um, so when the town drunk isn't around anymore at the next meeting, Riley is like, well, well, where the hell is he? And Hamish, trying to come up with a quick lie, um, says, oh, he's visiting his sister. But we right. as the audience know, oh, he already said his sister is dead. And you get to watch Riley kind of carry this knowledge that the preacher just lied to him. And what is he going to do about it? And it finally ends with him walking. He he has this wonderful relationship he's building with Kate Siegel. They were old, you know, kind of old sweethearts. And now they're maybe rekindling something. And he's going over to visit her. And right before he gets to the door, he turns around. And he heads back to the meeting. And as he walks in on Hamish, there is this, oh, hey, giant freaking vampire that just turns <laughs> around and flies at the camera in this monstrous way. And it's like... And that's the episode. And you go, holy crap, they just killed the main character. Yeah, which I love. I always like when main characters die in things. Uh, I thought it was just a really cool, holy shit moment. Um, and then, you know, the next episode, then I think has maybe the best moment of the series where, you know, it's all a lot of it is framed around Riley, who's now kind of realizing what has happened to him. Um, well, and uh, do you, you get an episode yeah. between those two? You get the episode oh, okay. where he's missing, and oh, right. everyone Sorry. thinks he's just off the wagon. And that's the episode that follows Kate Siegel, uh, when she kind of learns. So, Kate Siegel's character, um, Erin Green, is pregnant at the beginning of the show and like very close. I think she's like you know, seven, eight months along, and um, and she's fairly religious. She goes, she drinks the sacrament with everyone else. And uh, then one day while going for a checkup, there's no heartbeat. And it's this horrible it, and, and also very honestly done portrayal of miscarriage. And then she wants to get a second opinion. She needs to know what happened. So she goes into the mainland. Uh, and in this episode following Riley's death, you're still reeling off the fact that Riley is dead and no one knows. She is experiencing this horrific grief as she's trying to find out what happened to her baby. And the doctor on the mainland says, uh, your body isn't showing any signs of pregnancy. It's as if you were never pregnant. Like, not that you had a miscarriage, but you were never pregnant. And it is this, it's, it's like gaslighting. It is just watching a person go insane by being told something that is so maddening. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is a really interesting kind of mystery of what happened to the baby and there's that sort of, um, like you said, that kind of classic device of no, you know, everyone's sort of doubting her and, you know, she feels like she might be going insane. Um, so again, yeah, I like that a lot. Ep- the whole episode, you still in the back of your head as a viewer going, what is, what about Riley? Riley is dead. Like she doesn't know that Riley is dead. We know it's this beautiful irony that's created. And then at the end of the episode, after all of this personal tragedy, a knock at the door and you're like, oh no, monsters. Because now we know monsters are there. They're on the island. And uh, and Katie opens the door and, uh, hey, who's standing there? It's Riley. And then we, and again, a beautiful end of 
episode button that makes you go, well, I guess I'm not going to sleep tonight. Right, right. Um, but yeah, just so so I guess fast forwarding then to the the whole sort of section you, of the show the where boat flashback they're I mean, in the boat. We're, we're in the end game at this point where things are kind of uh, getting to this this point. Riley Riley takes her in the middle of the night. He goes to Katie's house in the middle of the night and he takes her on a rowboat, which is something they like to do as kids. And he rows her out into the middle of the ocean. And it's like, you kind of wonder, because you know what happened to him. At this point, there's no question in your mind, Riley is a vampire. And he takes her out in the middle of the ocean and you have this wonderfully well done flashback where Riley wakes up from being dead. And then you have this mirror of the AA meetings that he's been having with the father, Father Paul, except now they're kind of mask off. Let's talk about what really has been going on. Yeah, and I think for me, what was so great about the boat stuff was that I really didn't know where it was going. Like, I in my head, I, there were like several possibilities of where this was all leading. And it for whatever reason, it didn't occur to me that this was going to be a re-death of, of Riley. And so when, it, it, you, when you have that aha light bulb moment that this is what he's doing, he's essentially uh, sort of committing suicide, but as a way to prove to Aaron uh, what is going on with him so that his story doesn't sound completely crazy and she realizes like the true stakes here. I mean, that's just an incredible moment because it was, to me, it really was unexpected. I'm, maybe others saw it coming, but I was like, oh, wow, this is a really amazing moment that now it all makes sense in retrospect, but I didn't anticipate it. Well, I think that there's, uh, again, on second viewing, there's a lot of foreshadowing that leads you in one direction when really it's going to turn another. You know, Riley is, is no stranger to what addiction has done to him. He knows what happens if he lets himself go back off the wagon and he is worried he will hurt people when he is having that flashback with father paul and he is shown what the thirst feels like and and even father paul calls it out he's like you know what this is this is addiction and it's it's that horror not just i'm dead and i'm a vampire but i'm an addict this is the worst thing to have happened to me because now I have the strength and power to do even worse things than just drinking and driving. And so when he takes uh, uh, Aaron out on that boat, and it is it's a parallel of the story that he told her before about his, his recurring dream um, of both of them out on the boat, it's because he knows that the only thing he can do is remove that, uh, remove himself out of that addiction. And it's not, it's a self-sacrifice. It is not a glorification of suicide or anything like that. It's more about recognizing uh, that you are you are part of something wrong and removing yourself from the wrongness. And in this case, it does mean, again, a second death, but it's done so beautifully. And, and another thing we haven't really mentioned because of the opening of the show, because when we're introduced to Riley, he is staring at this poor girl dead on the ground. Throughout the series, he will lie down in bed and see her. And the camera does this wonderful Dutch tilt, and then there is this horrific dead person just staring at him. Not like doing anything scary, but just being the thing that he thinks about, being his living embodiment of guilt. And yeah. in, the, 
and his final moments on the boat as he shares with Aaron, I didn't take you out here to hurt you. I took you out here so that I wouldn't have anywhere to run. And then the sun starts coming up and you see him as the sun hits his face, look over and see the girl, but she's not disfigured. She's not bloody. It's the girl kind of being peace at the same way that he can now be at peace because he has chosen to fight his addiction in a very literal way. And then it cuts hard to Katie Siegel screaming as Riley is turned to ash. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other thing too, that's just cool is like the show over the course of a couple of episodes is sort of kind of establishing the rules for these vampires. And so this is sort of like a key rule that's now a hundred percent, like you already sort of are getting that, you know, they can't be in sunlight and it's that kind of classic vampire thing. But you know, this is sort of cementing like, okay, these vampires, they will disintegrate if they're exposed to pure sunlight. And it's sort of making you wonder how, okay, how does that factor into the potential end game of it all, you know? Yeah. And it's fast. Like the, the effect of sun is immediate on them. And we also get yeah. a little taste of that with our doctor character whose mother has been you know, this mother was comatose, essentially, uh, you know, kind of the final stages of her own illness. And then since she has been getting a sacrament brought to her, you know, in-house by the priest, she is de-aged to the point where she now looks like she's in her 20s. I mean, it is yeah. very clearly some crazy stuff is going on. It and, is kind um, of funny, though, by the way, that, like, she gets to de-age to her 20s versus, like, Henry Thomas gets to de-age to, like, you know, 55. <laughs> 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 doesn't seem quite fair there true <laughs> well i mean like, he's there's only so much makeup's gonna do for you <laughs> i guess it's reassuring because didn't he say at some point father paul that like you de-age to your peak you know moment or whatever yeah so something like, like that i guess that's comforting that for some people you know your peak moment might be in your mid-50s I mean, look, to be fair, uh, um, he's fantastic. So I don't think he needs to DH <laughs> any further. I, I think true. Henry Thomas is killing it. Um, and it's so there's a there's a fun moment, another bit of foreshadowing where the doctor has been taking your mother's blood and, you know, trying to figure out what's going on, that her mother is having this weird, miraculous effect. And she leaves it by the window. And as soon as the sun hits it, the vial explodes. Right. And, uh, that was cool. And so you have this this whole episode where Aaron knows vampires are on the island where the doctor knows some weird stuff's going on and they get together and they have this open, somewhat insane conversation about, okay, so there's vampires on the island and we're both crazy, but also that is literally the only thing this can be. And it's this, it's one, it's a wonderful scene. And then the mom who, uh, in, in the previous episode, they, uh, they went to a midnight mass, the, uh, uh, you know, titular midnight mass and the preacher, uh, now fully, you know, getting ready for some fun vampire times, basically gave a call to arms speech to the town. And the mom walks out going, mm, we're not going to be a part of that. Right. Uh, it is. Well, so I think there's a couple things going on here. One is, well, first, I just want to give a shout out to, you know, I'm a huge, my favorite show ever is the X-Files. And uh, so between uh, the X-Files poster that was in Riley's childhood mm -hmm. bedroom and the fact that Annabeth Gish is on the show. 
that warmed my X-Files fan heart. Uh, I don't think I'd seen her in anything in quite a while, so that was nice. And I thought she was really good in this, too, um, and well cast. But I guess, so the other thing is, to take a step back, like, so after the death of, the re-death, if you will, of Riley, we're now sort of in the endgame for the last two episodes. And this is where, okay, so I'll be honest with you, this is where I started to have some issues with the show, I guess. Or just because to that point, I was like, this might be a masterpiece. The last two episodes, I did like a lot of aspects of them, but I felt like the show didn't quite know what it wanted to do with those final two episodes because it basically sets it up as being like, now we're going to be in this like crazy, like we're transitioning from like, you know, uh, kind of grounded uh, character-based Mike Flanagan stuff to we're about to have a vampire war and you're kind of ready for that escalation. And the show does give you that, that escalation, but it all starts to feel a little bit rushed to me. And I feel like the, the end game for a lot of the characters starts to escalate in a way that doesn't quite feel true to what has been established beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what your overall thoughts were. Cause let's, I, I kind of view the final two episodes as like one sort of end game movie almost, but what was your thought on like that overall end game of how it played out? So I, I mean, yeah, again, we could have a whole podcast just about that final episode, but yeah, I think the only thing that felt a little fast, not rush, but just it, it. I wish it had a little bit more room to breathe. Is is Father Paul kind of realizing the error and recognizing that what he has really thought yeah. um, is is monstrous? Uh, there's there's a line where he's talking about you know all of this, all of the things I was doing. I was really thinking about you because as we discover, the doctor on the island is his illegitimate child. It's it's a wonderful <laughs> twist, um, and there's. I, I wish that there was another episode to let that yes. that revelation breathe a little bit. But also the 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 breadcrumbs of things kind of uh, or the dominoes kind of falling into place with uh, people recognizing as they get into this church as rat poison is handed out. Oh my god, how terrifying this is! The uh, the sudden appearance of the angel at a right. certain point. Like, well, so- all, I think the whole last episode is. It's such a wonderful release of all the tension that's been building up over these last few episodes. And it it sold me. Like that was I was really into the show. And then that yeah. last episode was like, oh, okay, this it's all been leading to this, and it's all fantastic and bloody and crazed. And 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 yeah, it was awesome. I thought it was a fantastic end. Well, I guess two things. One is in that, I think in the second to last episode, all the buildup, you know, where they're in the church and you see this incredible visual of the angel, the vampire, walking down the aisle and everyone looking at him in awe. And, you know, they're all drinking the poison. I mean, that was incredible. That was just a mo- like, what a moment that was for the show. Um, Everything after that is where it started to lose me a little bit because I think what the show didn't quite give you enough of is 
are these people becoming evil, bad? Are they becoming bad people after, you know, they get this vampire blood in them? Are the, well, they I, evil all along? I, like, I think they, I think they yeah. uh, kind of answer that. I mean, Henry, uh, uh, Henry Elliot, or Elliot, <laughs> Henry Thomas, uh, uh, says to his wife after they've both been turned into vampires, yeah. I haven't fed on anybody. I feel the hunger, but I don't think that this turns you into something. And I think that uh, Mike Flanagan has done this a lot in a lot of his stories. It's the idea that absolute power doesn't corrupt you. Absolute mm -hmm. power reveals who you are. And I think that that's, that's the end message of the vampiric power is that it's because there are a lot of people who throughout the show aren't, you know, on the straight and narrow, aren't the best people. But when they're given this power, they're not tearing apart their neighbors. Instead, they're just hanging out with their loved ones. And you have these people who uh, you know, unwillingly uh, hurt those around them. Like there's, there's a lot of horrifying things towards the end of the episode where people are like, I killed my kids, I killed my wife, I killed my parents. Um, well, and, I guess and it's, it it's is people giving themselves into religious zealotry. The idea right. that we must be doing something right because the church told us it was right. I guess where where I falter a little bit is like Henry Thomas, for example, he, he and his wife were portrayed throughout the show as sort of, well, if anyone in this town are, is sort of fanatical, it might be them. But yet they were, you know, not killers at the end versus a lot of the other characters who were portrayed as mostly like, well, relatively decent people, they were mostly killers at the end. So I didn't quite add up for me in that, in that way, I guess. Uh, in, in that sense, I see people on that Island as using religion for two different things. One is a blanket because uh, uh, Riley's mom, who is very, very devout throughout the, the show. And that would make you right. think that she's going to be a little bit zealous. But it's it's not that she sees religion as a hammer, as something to beat people with. She sees religion as a blanket you wrap around yourself to fight off the night. Mm -hmm. So her, her son who killed somebody drunk driving, she wraps herself in religion and says, religion's going to make this okay. Religion is going to offer us a path to salvation. And so... Even at the end, when she is, you know, in the moments before being a human to being a vampire, she is confronting Bev and saying, why don't you understand that a loving God loves equally, that he loves my son, the, the, the drunk driver, just as much as he loves you, the devout warrior. And it's that I think is really the, the commentary of those who are monstrous vampires and those who <laughs> are holding back is that. That idea of religion as something you beat people over the head with, or religion is something that is warm and comforting and you wish to share. And I think that that's, that's the overall message. And it may not be handled as much or as, as with as much care as it could have been. Because I know that message is lost and I, I may be interpreting it my own way, but I don't think it was a statement against religion, but against people who view religion as an excuse to do whatever right. they want well then i mean then there's the whole bev of it all where you know bev throughout a lot of the show has been this sort of just you know very hateable uh you know kind of classic church lady stern unaccepting of others different from herself wanting everyone to sort of conform to her religion 
in the final episodes, she goes full on like Thanos and is just like basically wants to destroy the world. And I mean, that is kind of a big leap. I mean, it's entertaining, but you're also like, wow, that really escalated very quickly. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think there's a, there's a great statement that, and this, this comes back to her relationship with, um, with the sheriff. And I know we're leaving a lot of stuff on the table, but I do encourage yeah. people to go and watch this because it is a wonderful show. Um, so there's this, this great dynamic between her and the sheriff, Ro Coley, who is Muslim. And he, um, he has this whole exchange with her or with, uh, with his son and with the other people in the town. And he's like, it's all about, you know, I've been trying to find dignity. The reason that he moved to this small town was about dignity. It was about, you know, not being the, the Muslim, uh, token Muslim on the NYPD, not not letting people use his religion against him. And then at the end of the show, in the final moments of their lives, both Bev and the sheriff have a chance to kind of confront death. And he is able to do it with dignity. Right. And, and she is not. And it's because in that final moment where you face, you know, your judgment how honest with yourself are you going to be about it? And uh, as it turns out, she's going to be pretty honest and she knows it's not going well. Although I'm going to have to say, I don't know how you felt about this, Adam, but I kind of hated the sheriff by the end of the show. <laughs> like, Well, he... you wish that he had been a little bit more aware of the fact that there's vampires in this town. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like at some point you just reach that point of no return. Where it's like, okay, there's clearly vampires. There's clearly like a need to sharpen your steak, get your garlic <laughs> ready. Like, you know, in the movie From Dust Till Dawn is sort of the classic where it's like this, you know, obviously this is very different than Tarantino, but in that movie, it's sort of this more straightforward like crime film. And then at some point they're like, well, guess there's vampires and we're going to have to kill a bunch of vampires. <laughs> and I was kind of waiting for that moment in this. And the sheriff, until the very end, is like, no, everything seems pretty uh, reasonable here. I'm just going to sit back and <laughs> see what happens. They're like, there's freaking vampires. Like, clearly well, shit is going down. You can like, also see on, that uh, he, he even says it. It's like, I can't be the Muslim sheriff who walks into the church and accuses people of doing something wrong because that's not going to go over well. And, and again... If, if the mayor is playing the mayor from Jaws, he's clearly not the sheriff in Jaws. He's, he's kind of just another stooge of the mayor. He's like a stooge of the town. And, uh, and I uh, didn't see the vampires, but at the same time, how did anybody look at that creature walking into the church and go, hey, that's a vampire? Yeah, that's the like, other thing, not too. It's like this brat poison. That's just a vampire. How do you not get that? I mean, that's the other thing. Like I said, the, the scene of the vampire walking through the church was incredible, but the reactions were, I would have liked the reactions to be a little bit more turned up because if you, like Adam, if you or I saw that vampire creature, we would just be like jumping up and down, being like, holy mother of God. <laughs> like, and people were just kind of like, huh. That's a little that's, weird. You don't see that every day. Well, I think again. I mean, that's that's a suspension of disbelief moment because right, again, right. at a certain point, you have to be like, "Hey, guys, so that's that's just literally a vampire." 
everything that we're looking at right now is the clearest. If you had never heard of a vampire before and you saw that creature, you'd be like, now nah, I'm going to invent a word and it's going to be vampire because that's what yeah. that is. <laughs> well, that, I mean, I'm joking about it, but I guess that's sort of my overall complaint with the end game is that it, I don't know if it fully decided on the tone that they wanted for that end game. And it could have, it sort of had one foot in like, we're going to go full from dusk till dawn and just have this crazy over the top finale. And then part of it was like, we're trying to keep to this very specific grounded reality of it all. And I don't know if it fully found that right balance. I don't know. That's kind of my, my thought on it. I could see that. And, and I do think that it, I wish that it had a little bit longer. I honestly, I know a lot of people said yeah. it could have been cut down and been like fewer episodes. I honestly would have liked one more episode to really explore it. But at the same time, for me, it connected. And I, I understand completely how it didn't for some people. It was, it, endings to stories can sometimes be polarizing, where the, the story that you built in your head and where it could have gone isn't quite what the creators decided to go with. Uh, I, I like some of the choices that were made. There were some that I was like, oh, okay, I, 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 I see where they're going with that. Um, yeah, if I could have had one more episode sort of in between the final two, I guess there's two things I would have loved. One is just a real focus on like the inner um, workings of Father Pruitt slash Father Paul and just really making you feel why after kind of going right to the edge is he now pulling back and kind of turning against his beliefs that he had and really exploring that in the same detail that we got from Riley yeah, and sort of his inner, his inner monologue. Um, I would have loved that. The other thing is that so much of the ending, which I did, I did like the very ending and like the visuals of it and everything, but I wish we had a little bit more attachment to those teenagers who were kind of, you know, the show did start with the teenagers kind of in their shenanigans, mm -hmm. but then we got away from them for a large portion of the show. And I didn't feel that invested in like that main relationship between Riley's younger brother and um, the girl. I just felt like it, it, it felt like it was missing an episode to really get into them. Yeah. And I, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. It's again, anybody who tries to stick a landing in any kind of long form yeah. storytelling, I often, I tell them it's, it's, it's impossible. Like it's so hard to close storylines to make it really, really sink in. And I think that that's for what they were able to pull off. I think it was very successful in some big areas. And again, I walk away from this very satisfied. I know that there's yeah. a lot of things. Like, again, if I had a million dollars or, uh, excuse me, a hundred million dollars and the ability to look at it with hindsight and be like, oh, we could have done this, we could have done that. Yeah, there's always going to be a better way to tell a story once it's done. But you can, you can play Monday morning screenwriter and Monday morning director all you want. At the end of the day, to be this successful with such nitpicky things as we walk away from it, I think that's the sign of a really well-done series. Yeah, no, I think, look, at the end of the day, I think Mike Flanagan, I mean, he's one of my favorite creatives out there right now. And, you know, sometimes I do have, like, nitpicks with his stuff or just think, you know, sometimes endings in particular or where I, I kind of question sometimes. But 
overall, like he's one of, I think he's one of the most ambitious directors and, and writers working in horror. And he always brings so much um, thematic ambition and so much narrative ambition. And he, he really is skillful at combining these very serious, dramatic storylines with just the right amount of like over the top horror, um, you know, that Stephen King of it all type of horror, which I really, really enjoy. So, I mean, I cannot wait to see what he does next. And ultimately, I really, really enjoyed Midnight Mass. And I think at the end of the day, it was my favorite of his three Netflix horror series. I agree. I think uh, I think he keeps getting better. I can't wait to see what he does next. I love the cast that he has assembled around himself because he does like to use a lot of the same actors over mm-hmm. and over again. I know Kate Siegel's his wife, uh, so that's that's obviously one reason you would keep using them. But um, but she's incredible. So I mean, yeah, keep using her because she's amazing. Um, I loved the star turn for Hamish. Uh, I think Ro Coley. I know that I wish his character had more because I I really think he's such a really charismatic actor. Uh, he has great presence on screen, and I want to see him get to have more to do. So I <laughs> hope he gets to have his like, – he's had several star turns in Michael Flanagan's shows. Bly Manor, he stole the damn thing. But yeah. I would love to see him get a lead and get to run with it because I think it would be great. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, again, my big – I know I've said this, but my biggest takeaway from the show in a lot of ways is like, Hamish Linklater, give this man an Emmy – cast him in everything he just was incredible in the show and like just watching him play this character is was one of my favorite like tv viewer experiences of the year i think oh absolutely i would love to see him and john noble together oh yeah oh, oh that'd be <laughs> wonderful <laughs> um and i don't know i mean you know i don't know to what extent he's done horror but he just seems like one of those guys that was born to play these sort of sinister roles so mm-hmm. i hope we see more of that from him well i think um, everybody you know from top to bottom i don't think there was yeah. a weak link in the cast i think the crew did an incredible job putting this together and you know kudos again to the writer director for pulling off a very difficult and or not, excuse me not difficult but not a very complicated story well i think that that's something a lot of writers and a lot of directors could really learn is that you don't have to write inception you don't have to create these incredibly convoluted stories in order to impress viewers. You just have to take a simple story and focus on character and tell it well. It's very similar to what we talked about with Squid Games. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's the same reason why Stephen King is one of my favorite writers ever. You know, when I think about some of my favorite works of his, you remember those moments of horror, but you also remember those characters so vividly and he created so many iconic characters. And I think, obviously, Mike Flanagan is a devotee of Stephen King. Um, and I think he is sort of the, you know, he, he falls in that same tradition in a lot of ways. Um, so I will just say, I think my dream project from Mike Flanagan, I know they just adapted this in the last like year. That adaption maybe wasn't quite so successful. So I say... Maybe wait a couple of years if you need to, but let Mike Flanagan do a Netflix series of The Stand because, especially after watching this show, I'm like, that's what he was born to do. He would, absolutely, do he would absolutely kill it. I would yeah. love to see him take on Resident Evil. 
And, mm, and I know that I know we're, we're getting ready to see a new version of it. Is is the new one coming out? Is that a movie or is that a TV? Yeah, show? there's a movie coming out in like a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, I think it's it's coming up really fast. I, I haven't really seen much about it, but yeah. No, honestly, I I have my issues with the Resident Evil series. This is a left turn we're taking. I have my issues with it, but <laughs> I have to admit that it has been one of the most successful video game adaptations in history, and so. I do kind of have to give it to uh, it's what w, Paul W. L. Anderson. I mean, it's <laughs> good job, but I would love to see a true horror director take on the most iconic horror series of the video game era. And 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 I think at this point, I would love to see him do whatever the hell he wants to do. But I think it would be a wonderful adaptation to see him pull off. I could definitely see him doing like something that was more in line with the more recent. Resident Evil games. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a hard time seeing him doing like the two commandos going into the, you know, haunted house type of like the more over yeah. the top cartoony stuff. But I could see him doing like a Resident Evil Village would be cool. Um, oh yeah, that'd be great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I you know, I I still say Doctor Sleep is my. I said Midnight Mass was my favorite of his TV series, but Dr. Sleep is actually one of my favorite movies of the last several years. Um, and so surpassed my expectations for it. Um, to me, that's still like the gold standard of what Mike Flanagan is, is capable of. Agreed. Um, well, Adam, I know this is, has been a, uh, a epic podcast as tends to happen when we discuss our favorite shows. <laughs> Um, I don't think I we think, know how to do them short yet. <laughs> no, no. Um, but we'll have to do another one soon. I don't, I'm trying to think of like what, uh, other show I've been watching that, well, I, uh, because I, I could talk about it if it's like uh, for a while soon. Oh man. I, Actually, I, 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 yeah. You know what I, I have? I, I've I, not I really talk- want to watch. There's a, a, that new movie or TV show just came. Was it a show or a t- arcane? The league of legends one. Oh I, yeah, uh, I, I haven't I've, seen that. I've been interested to. Well, I haven't seen it yet, but I have so many people telling me, "Oh my god, you have to see it!" I think the art style looks gorgeous. So I'm gonna dive into that one probably over the weekend, and uh, that could be something that I might be able to talk about because I have I've got a lot of uh, backstory with League of Legends and my my once dogged pursuit to get hired at Riot that did not yield fruit. <laughs> oh man, well uh, we'll think about it. We'll find something worthy of. <laughs> an epic podcast with with the two of us adam before we wrap up anything that you would like to plug or call attention to uh well let's see i would say everyone go out and create something amazing uh use the next month to pursue something that you're really interested in if you are a playwright dreamworks is opening up a playwright fellowship that uh you should absolutely consider i'm definitely to be signing up for that and if you want to learn more about uh, uh writing or just weird storytelling stuff i've been doing an anorimo series on tiktok you can find me at officer mancorn uh but most of all just you know take care of yourselves have a have a wonderful holiday season and uh, we'll see you at the next random podcast very nice and uh you can follow me on twitter at at danny barham just my first name and last name and also speaking of cool horror stuff uh, I just recently launched a Twitter page for the upcoming comic book I've been working on called Halloween Team that I'm really excited about. It's still probably 
you know, a good uh, six months or so away from launching. Um, but I'm really excited about it. So you can follow uh, the news and developments around that at, at Halloween Team 22 at Twitter, uh, on Twitter. So check that out, Halloween Team. Um, and thank you guys. Really appreciate it. And thank you again, Adam. Thank you. It was wonderful. Can't wait to do it again. All right. Peace out, everybody.